This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Welcome to episode 26 of Gotham TV Podcast, the unofficial podcast of the TV show Gotham and the connected DC Universe. This week we'll be looking at episode 8, entitled The Mask, where we'll discuss everything about the episode, along with all of this week's news from the DC world. I'm one of your hosts, John. And I'm Derek. Welcome back if you've been with us before. Uh, If not, welcome on board. Good to see you. How are you this week, John? Pretty good, yeah. Pretty good. What have you been up to? Um, I think what most of the world has been up to, which <laughs> is looking at a certain teaser trailer. Yeah. Very teasery trailer um, for Star Wars. <laughs> yes, the Episode 7 teaser trailer came out last week. And uh, yeah, like anybody else, I think we've watched it about 100 times now, I think. And every device I have, I think, has played it at least <laughs> once. <laughs> um, yeah, really excited about about, uh, about seeing a bit of Star Wars and... 13 months time. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they're not doing teaser trailers of, you know, the Infinity Gauntlet just yet. That's or um, Wonder Woman. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. Well, I guess we'll start off the show with a bit of news. This week, some of the news came out, which was very um, interesting, was about Arrow and the Flash, and that, um, well, don't mention the war. I mean, don't (laughs) talk about Gotham City or Metropolis. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think it was Andrew Kreisberg stressed that sort of any referencing to Batman on the show um, kind of is a tease, really, and that obviously um, they have the Batman movies, and there's Gotham, the series, and... DC, you know, being amazing partners, there can be all these interchangeable references to to different shows. Certainly something that is really good um, about the DC comic book world being under one organization with Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment. But that ultimately any of those teasing out of various things, you know, such as Raz al Ghul Mm -hmm. or the Suicide Squad or um, Harley Quinn... Well, any of those other great Batman references um, mm-hmm. is really just a tease. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just very much they're not able to say the two city names. Um, Gotham is essentially quite central, obviously, to uh, to the Gotham TV show. Um, Metropolis is central to the Superman myth and the Superman character, um, with Supergirl coming up on another network very soon. Um, they're, they're obviously not going to be referencing that. But it's quite a, quite an interesting piece because the question that we always see asked of producers and directors and showrunners and writers for any of these shows is, will they cross over? Um, that keeps coming up over and over again. So it's quite interesting that Andrew Kreisberg, who, is, who was out promoting the crossover between Arrow and Flash this week, uh, it's quite interesting that he's saying that essentially those are out of bounds. They're, they're for the movies and for the current TV shows that are out there. I thought that was an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose one of the other aspects would be the mention of Nightwing on Arrow as well, and Bloodhaven. And again, it's, you know, sorry lads, but that's kind of Batman Gotham property. Yeah. For me, anyway, I mean, 
they can reference it all till they want, but I just feel that that really, to an extent, shouldn't necessarily be cropping up too much in Arrow yeah, or yeah, I don't Flash. Th- I think they have their own kind of gallery of rogues and villains and allies and so on. I think they can, but let's you know, keep it to a minimum. <laughs> Absolutely. Unless, the Batman ones are good. Unless they're going to cross over, unless Alan and Montoya are going to suddenly appear in Central City or in, uh, or in Starling City. Um, I think uh, I think we should, but they should leave it there. I think that's about it. That the best they can do is talk about Bloodhaven or talk about, you know, some of these things. I wouldn't mind at all if they mentioned that, you know, the city of Gotham. I think it could be a quite cool in one, in one line. But they're basically saying there will not be a crossover between the characters. I don't see the problem in characters in that same universe talking about other cities. Like I don't mind them talking about Bloodhaven and so on, like they did with Nightwing at all. I think they should mention Gotham. And Metropolis, they're mm-hmm. all part of the same world, universe, yeah. family. They're doing um, a very different thing on TV than, than Marvel are, for example. They're doing a very different thing on TV with all of these shows are very separate. They're keeping them all separate, it sounds like, uh, apart from Arrow and Flash, who are crossing over, I think, next week in the US or this week uh, in the US. So, um, so yeah, so quite interesting overall. Uh, one of the other pieces of news for this week, um, we talked about it for months. Um, the Gotham by Midnight came out this week, the first issue of, uh, of the comic book Gotham by Midnight. Um, with art by Ben Templesmith, who's John's basically oh, yeah. favorite artist, who we met at New York Comic Con, uh, had a good had a good chat with him about this. Uh, Absolutely, this book. Um, and it's written by Raymond Falks. Read the first issue, uh, and it, again, just the artwork screams horror. It screams dark, dingy, supernatural. I just absolutely love it. Um, how he captures that eeriness mm-hmm. um, around horror. Is, is amazing and really great. And that's part of the reason why I love um, the artwork of Ben Templesmith. Mm-hmm. And it brings Jim Corrigan into the mix. Yeah, absolutely. As a supernatural entity, he certainly is glowing green on the pages mm-hmm. uh, compared to some of the other characters. So I suggest that might be spectery type of hint there. Oh, absolutely. Um, and... It's looking really good. Again, creepy um, ending. So mm-hmm. can't wait to see what issue two is going to um, expand on um, from from this first issue. So yeah. definitely um, check it out, um, whether it's electronically um, from Comixology or whether you're going to your local comic book store to, to pick up a copy um, of, of Gotham by Midnight. If you can find one. It's been uh, it's been pretty much sold out in our in our local comic book shops. It's uh, it's definitely one that people are waiting for by the sounds of things. Everybody's looking for a different a different take on Gotham at the moment and this is a really good, interesting, very different take. With a very um, and highly supernatural twist to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And our final piece of news for this week, um, I think we didn't talk about it last week. It was just uh, just when we were recording our episode, I think, last week, where the news came out about, uh, about Constantine not getting an extension to their original TV series. Um, they ended off only getting a thirteen, only getting the thirteen episodes that were originally requested by NBC. Uh, we've really enjoyed Constantine, but um, I think the the ratings, I think on the at, at the ten PM slot on Friday for them has kind of worked against them. They haven't gotten great ratings in that particular time slot. So NBC has decided that the episodes they've made so far is enough for them uh, for this season. They're not going to uh, put more budget into getting it up to a twenty two episode season like Gotham got. Um, they still say there's hope. They still say there's absolutely hope for uh, for the show to come back for a second season. And when we talked to Daniel Cerrone, which you'll read in our interview on the, on the website on GothamTVPodcast.com, um, he told us recently they were already breaking episode 17, which means they were, they were working on episode 17 and had already written 
the other episodes in case they did get the the green light to go ahead with the with the 22 episodes for a season and um, so they've already got quite a, quite a bit of storytelling on under their belt um and they'll have quite a quite a bit out there by the time it gets to episode 13 so um yeah but bit a bit sorry to hear that that the show isn't going to get a full 22 episodes because it's been fantastic the last few episodes have been really really yeah, good i mean it's interesting how this world of tv works really that we're also kind of interested in you know because it puts such great characters up on screen every week, whether it's Gotham, Arrow, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Constantine. Um, and for me, I kind of feel it's a shame because Constantine seems to be doing well in that slot, even mm. though it's a bad slot. Um, yeah. It's getting good critical reviews. Mm-hmm. I think maybe... With episode two, it stumbled a bit, but from then on, episode three up till our current episode at the moment, um, it's been really solid, really linking in with the um, canon and mythos of Constantine from mm-hmm. Hellblazer. So that's the other element for but, me. But also doing a great job of not making it feel like you had to read the comic book to watch Absolutely. the show. I think I think that's really important for anybody that's... Sometimes you get you get people that are worried about checking out a show because they think, oh, I'm going to have to have read the book to enjoy this. I don't think Constantine has been that. So They're far. not copying the actual... it. They're using it as source material. And mm-hmm. I think that is has been really good. Bringing in characters like Papa Midnight mm-hmm. and bringing in... Jim Corrigan. Jim Corrigan, yeah. exactly. All those different things, really, really good. I actually think it would be quite nice to see how it would do in a more favourable time slot. I think if you, as a network, put it in a slot that has traditionally had bad ratings, mm-hmm. no matter what it is, um, or it, it pertains to an audience that doesn't fit that time slot, well, then I think you have to experiment with it. I think, secondly... For us, over uh, this side of the Atlantic, they went down the route of giving it to uh, Amazon Prime. Well, let's just clarify, selling it for a lot of money exclusively to Amazon Prime. Selling it to Amazon Prime. But there was very little hoo-ha about that. We were seeing whether Constantine was actually even going to be shown over in the UK and Ireland very late on um, before almost right up until it was its first episode airing in the USA. Mm-hmm. We had heard nothing. And, I mean, I have an Amazon account. I have an Amazon.co.uk account. Mm-hmm. Um, so no kind of promotion there for the Amazon Prime service, yeah. which you would think it would tie in as, you know, promote Constantine as a way of increasing the number of subscribers to the Amazon Prime service. Absolutely. It certainly wasn't like something like uh, House of Cards on Netflix or um, or one of those shows that, that is exclusively shown on those channels uh, or that, that service. Or even Daredevil. Uh, yeah. Like you think of uh, at NYCC um, just last month. Mm-hmm. We were given the opportunity to see some of the first shots of Daredevil that are going on to Netflix. Netflix, obviously, along with Marvel, are promoting this in a way at the comic conventions, let alone directly maybe on their service, nearer to the time, obviously. But we already know that. We never knew that this was going on to Amazon Prime until very late on. And you would think that there would be some really excellent leverage available there. And if there was going to be 
hard sell and a lot of money taking place, you would think it would be leveraged even by Amazon, yeah, much more it, than it has been. It very much seemed like Amazon over here were, were just depending on the promotion that NBC were doing for the show. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but hey, you know, not cancelled yet. 13 episodes will still be shown. There'll still be that arc. Um, they have built it out to be a, to be a story that's, uh, that's contained within those 13 episodes that will keep people interested in the show. And hopefully they'll get a second season with, with repeats and with, with on demand services and being able to watch it. You can see all the episodes if you're in the US on NBC.com slash Constantine. Just go there and you'll see them on there. Um, but there has been an online petition started up, uh, to save Constantine. Um, we've seen it on Twitter. Every day since this announcement, we've seen hundreds of thousands of uh, of tweets um, about it. So there's definitely an audience out there that are very passionate. Absolutely. And um, hopefully it will find even more of an audience, say, on repeats or on demand and so on. I suppose the fundamental question that is kind of raised by all of this is... Firstly, are 13 episodes a bad thing? Maybe that would be good as long as it leads to a second season. Mm -hmm. And maybe then it will be 17 or 22. Who knows? Much like like, uh, Hannibal, which is another show on NBC. Exactly. And then the other question that has to be posed is, are NBC able to hold, depending on the ratings, two shows Mm. like Hannibal and Constantine that both, whilst critically well-received, have a important and and sort of devoted fan base to them, but don't necessarily pull in higher audiences than maybe NBC would like. Are they, as a network, willing to have two shows on their network that are like that? Mm -hmm. I would think not. And my concern would be that obviously Hannibal is having its... um, Third season. That's probably more in prime position to, you know carry on than maybe Constantine which would be a shame but ultimately it's people who need to sit down and watch it uh, on a Friday night or I think importantly NBC might need to just experiment possibly with some of the time slots but um, that's never a good thing or good indicator anyway but Fingers crossed. I'm hopeful that it gets to season two. Yeah, yeah, me too. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I think that's it for the news for this week. I think we'll get on with our discussion about the mask. So, episode eight of Gotham, The Mask, was written by John Stevens again. He wrote the Balloon Man episode. Um, dun, and, dun, dun. <laughs> and he's an executive producer for the show as well. So, uh, so this is his, this is his second time up to bat for us. Um, this episode was directed by Paul A. Edwards, who's directed tons of stuff. Yeah, loads. Yeah, I was amazed when I looked back on, back on the stuff he's, he's directed. So, he's done 11 episodes of Lost. I think Love it, it or hate it, he did eight episodes of Lost. <laughs> 11 episodes I of Lost. I mean, 11 episodes of Lost. Gosh, I'm lost. lost. <laughs> he's done so much. Hi. Uh, he's directed episodes of Agents of Shield, Sleepy Hollow. He's he was also cameraman for Blade, so he's been around in the industry for years, years. And for Tony Scott's Man on Fire as well with Denzel Washington, he was cameraman as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so he's done tons, tons. He's done of a lot. I've got a lot of experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, John, do you want to give us the synopsis for the episode? Yeah, certainly. Um, This week's episode sees Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock investigate the dubious hiring practices of a one Richard Sionis. All the while, the fallout of last week's episode uh, and revelations sees the intense rivalry between Oswald Gobblepot and Fish Mooney come to a head with poor consequences for little old Timothy. (laughs) It also sees Jim Gordon struggle with his festering anger 
at his colleagues at the GCPD after their betrayal of him and walkout as Victor Zaz entered into the precinct in last week's episode. It also sees his relationship with Barbara begin to strain as the situation causes splinters within their relationship. But brings Jim Gordon closer to an understanding with both his partner, Detective Bullock, and Captain Essen over recent events. In the meantime, school calls for Bruce Wayne as he encounters an interesting bully called Tommy Elliot, who is both intrigued by him and his parents' murder. Ultimately, Tommy's bullying of Bruce can't be left alone, and Alfred steers Bruce to action he is much more comfortable with. Will you teach me to fight? asks Bruce. Extra stuff. Overall feeling about the episode for me? Okay. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Definitely, I think after the high of of Penguin's Umbrella last week, I think I was expecting the the momentum to just keep going, keep going, but obviously can't keep it up all the time. I love the fallout from last week's episode, definitely. Um, The Sayana stuff um, and the Black Mask stuff. Okay. All right. Uh, But yourself, what's the overall feeling? Similar, I think, to you, I think it was always going to be difficult for the next episode after Penguin's Umbrella. I mean, there were so many twists, turns, revelations that just weren't expected. And it was one of those episodes last week um, that can't be done all the time. Um, And it ultimately gives it that power. So any episode coming after is in a difficult position. It either has to maintain that level with sort of further... Um, by by further looking at all those things that went on in the previous episode, or you kind of have to take a step back a bit and see it from a bit further back. I mean, ultimately, we went into this investigation of the week kind of feel, yeah. for for better or for worse. Um, you know, there's things I like about that when it's done well, and there are things that. I'm not so keen on when maybe it's not done as well as it could have been. Yeah. Um, I think trying to cram the introduction of this guy, Richard Sionis, with a mask into one episode felt, again, squeezed. It made some parts of it feel a bit too convenient that mm-hmm. they had stumbled upon it. But again, one of the big things I'm really enjoying about Gotham are these serialized elements running through each episode and whether it's the fallout of um what happened in penguin's umbrella that is looked at in this in the mask or it's looking at bruce wayne and alfred's through story Mm -hmm. which i thought was really strong this time Uh, great to see them come out of wayne manor Mm -hmm. um uh, and interact i thought that was really really good i think it just expanded and developed both their characters much more yeah um to even just now the serialized elements I feel or should I say the serialized character elements that we're really beginning to see from week to week on Edward Nigma mm-hmm. and how he is developing as a character and I do feel that yes we have the big bads in here the Maronis and the Falcones and Oswald and Fish really being kind of focused on particularly Fish and Oswald. But we have, I think, this simmering danger coming from Edward Nigma, where we're really beginning to see how he feels disjointed from society Mm. through his interactions with other people from week to week. I mean, not always in every episode, but it's been stretched out and i'm really enjoying doing, that too they're definitely doing quite well and um, uh, one of the things we have talked about in the past is the brutality of the show for its time slot in the u.s you know we said it does skew to a bit we i think one of our 
pieces of feedback we talked about a couple of weeks ago was about um, about the fact that you know it's not really a kids show but it does skew towards kids and it's in an 8pm time slot this opening which is essentially at 7.59 in the evening in the US um, this opening scene is really brutal the, the fight between the, the, the two people vying for the job in Cyanus Industries um, when they're battling each other with you know computers over each other's heads and uh, staplers, staplers into yeah. the neck and uh, what I'm, I'm trying to think printer toner as we'll find out yeah yeah and what's the thing for uh, for slicing paper to the right size guillotine the, yeah the yeah. guillotine to the neck which is you know pretty brutal to see and then you know having a dead body being uh, on the uh, sitting there with a slashed neck is quite a brutal scene for a show this early in the evening in the US yeah but I mean, it's, but it's a great opening fight I mean it really gets your intrigue levels up about what is going on here and the fact that you know there's this unknown person at that moment viewing it all through um closed circuit tv yeah but again yeah it's really brutal i think he gets his finger bitten off yeah. i mean i was thinking is this the hiring practices at staples for example <laughs> um and it was interesting how that then developed where the body is again washed up at the docks and mm-hmm. we get then Ed Nigma doing his sort of on-site forensics um, and I, that lovely touch where he says, do you want me to get all the prints? Yeah. As he pulls out the chewed-off finger from the mouth of the victim. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, we also get the first of our, our bullockisms for the evening where he goes, oh, heck of a way to start the day uh, because he spilled coffee on himself, not because of the dead body <laughs> that's lying in front of him, which is great. Um, he um, has some good ones throughout this episode, he definitely. He does. Yeah. Um, we also get uh, get the the joke that Bruno, that uh, Danny Cannon was talking to us about in NYCC, where there's a cop standing right beside the body smoking a cigarette directly over it, which yeah. is you know totally unlike any other city in the in. I uh, think the, the crime world. scene is well and truly contaminated <laughs> at that point, Absolutely. what with coffee and with smoke, uh, yeah. but really. It's it's a really brutal opening. Um, it's an intriguing opening, mm. um, and it, it sets up this week's investigation of why were these two um, fighting? Who is behind that, uh, and for what purpose? Yeah, were you waiting for a guest appearance by Brad Pitt at all? It was very Fight Club, yeah. if that's what you're talking yes, about. Yes. <laughs> Just trying um, to slow down the picture to see if he suddenly appears in the background or something. That would be a very big coup if, if it was. But, I mean, yeah, there are huge elements of Fight Club type uh, things going on. But not necessarily exactly like Fight Club. Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the book, huge fan of the movie um, of Fight Club. Uh, and the one big thing here is this is the exact opposite of Fight Club. Fight Club is set up for people to take down the corporate world. This is set up for people to move up the ladder in the corporate world. So I've seen tons of people comment on how close to Fight Club it is. These guys are fighting it out to get to the top. That wasn't what the intention of the book or the intention of the film or the intention of the characters within it. Um, it definitely wasn't the intention of those storylines to to be used for the corporate world. But it's kind of the intention here. It's yeah. that, you know, um, Sionis, the company, it's a financial company. Um, essentially, they are fighting to get employed. It's this dog-eat-dog world, mm-hmm. um, and it's this fight to get to the top, which you get the impression from Sionis, it's Richard Sionis in this case, mm-hmm. has had to do, um, he makes reference to the fact anyway that it, you know, it's a bit of a, a battle and a fight to, to get ahead and to become top dog in the world of finance. Yeah. Where he kind of makes reference where you have to be a warrior um, and a fighter 
in the world of finance that it's a tough profession, as illustrated by this line. What's with all the warrior baloney? It inspires me. High finance is tough business. In order to succeed, you have to be a warrior. No, you don't. You have to be a good businessman. Warriors fight wars. It's different. So you fancy yourself a killer? Have you killed people, Mr. Salmas? Only metaphorically. So all this is just juvenile play acting. Yeah, the little gag there at the end from from Jim, where he says that you have to be a good businessman as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, primarily. <laughs> yeah, which I think is great. Uh, just the reason why it's particularly a good gag is that in the comic books, the character of the Black Mask, Roman Sionis, is a person who's lost his business. He's uh, he's become a member of the mob and become a gangster because he's lost his business. All of his money has been lost because he's not a poor businessman. So I wonder if that's a bit of a, a bit of a joke there from the writers about uh, about the fact that this is connected to the Black Mask in the comics. Uh, never called the Black Mask, obviously. He's just wearing a mask that happens to be black. But, yeah, and, he's, and he's Sionis. Yeah, it's, and it's Sionis. I mean, do you think it's it is Roman Sionis and they've just renamed his, his first name because we've got obviously Roman Falcone in the series. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident the um, more recently and more recent comics, or sorry, more recent um, media, I suppose, things like the Arkham City games, the yeah. Sionis Industries is quite present in those games and uh, I think that character was always... It has to be referenced to to the Black Mask. Uh, he could be. It could be his father. Um, it could be an, an, another relative of. Uh, it could of, be the weird uncle. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, you know, and he goes and finds all the stuff in his in his office and takes it home with him. Um, you know, but uh, but one of the great th- one of the one things I did want to mention was that office really reminded me of Batman eighty nine when yeah. when they walk in and see all of the uh, all the gear sitting there, which is all the samurai gear and swords and. At Wayne Manor, in Michael Keaton's Wayne Manor, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So all the stuff that's in Sionis' office seems like to be a bit of a reference to the to the Wayne Manor of 1989 Batman, but that, maybe that's just me. I don't know. Answers on a postcard again. The, well, and there's the other little um, tricky sort of translation problem, I think, here between um, American English and... English English or Irish English. <laughs> yeah. Um the the use of the word suspenders here elicited a, a slight giggle from me when um it was first mentioned at down at the docks as Edward Nigba saying he's wearing suspenders, he's a financier. Yeah. Um rather than maybe a hooker, <laughs> for example, a garter kind of suspender. And yeah. then the poor victim's mum references uh, or is told that your son was wearing suspenders when, by, he, died. Uh, when he died by yeah. um, by Jim, which suggested that maybe um, sexual deviancy was involved <laughs> at the time of his death. It certainly suggested that it, to us that he's a crossdresser, but yeah, it, it's braces for us in Europe. I think would be uh, would be the way we'd we'd hear the the term. Um, so yeah, I think it would be a, a big scandal if there were people beating each other up wearing suspenders. Uh, that would be something very suspenders. different. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we we knew what was meant, um, but we had to suddenly go. Was the suspenders? Did they mean braces? But it's it's one of those translation things, you know. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, but overall, as the investigation goes on, and they go in and go into Sianus Industries and, and confront Richard Sianus, you had a bit of a, a bit of an issue with some with with one of the elements of the investigation or one of the one of the elements of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's down to the fact that the investigation is being done in one episode, and mm-hmm. um, it's suddenly the whole 
moment where Harvey and Jim turn up at um, the offices where all the employees are kind of bruised, mm. they've got cuts, um, you know, arms in slings or whatever. And then you have the sort of the chat with Richard Sionis in his office, surrounded by all his sort of masks and weaponry. Um, it all just seemed a bit convenient to me. It's It's one of those things where the whole moving forward of that particular investigation from where they're investigating to where they found their suspect and they're going after them becomes very conveniently put into one single thing where it kind of went from um, Sionis saying, well, I don't do a roll call um, and asking, can you tell me what this is about? To him, by the end of the scene, standing up to Jim, saying, I can see the eyes of a killer. Jim says the same thing back, and it's very much this sudden confrontation that, yeah. well, I am the killer. I mean, and you come out of that scene where Jim Gordon has no doubt that this guy is the killer when, in fact, he may not have been. It just seemed a bit too quick, too convenient, and I think this is down to the fact of trying to wrap up an investigation in one episode mm -hmm. when you're also dealing with such a big episode last week um, and so on. And that, to me, just it just pulled away um, my enjoyment from this episode uh, a bit, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there were some great lines within that whole discussion, mm -hmm. whether it was from Harvey Bullock saying... I don't do good cop. Um, that's not in my repertoire. I can't yeah. remember the exact line, but that's a really good um, scene there. And there's the whole discussion um, about masks, you know, and Jim Gordon saying, well, a psychologist would say you're trying to hide something by wearing a mask. And, and Richard Sarno says, you know, a mask frees the soul. It hides the face, but it frees the soul. A mask speaks the truth. Mm -hmm. And of course... We have a whole range of different masks that, you know, Batman obviously wears a mask at some down the line, and we know about that. And actually that Jim Gordon it has no mask. As mm -hmm. one of the good guys, he has nothing to protect his identity. Um, and this has consequences for him, mm -hmm. as we know from the comics, but also any of his loved ones or associates, whether it may be being um, Harvey Bullock or Captain Essen, but more importantly... Barbara Keane. Yeah, yeah. They walk out the office where, you know, Jim is under no illusion that Richard Sionis has something to do with it. It's not just simply that the guy who was found murdered was from his company. Yeah. He finds blood on the floor. He goes into the, the toilet, to the bathroom, and sees someone washing their hands. He says, put your hands up. He's got all ten fingers yeah. remaining. But then the guy who happens to have nine fingers comes out of the bathroom cubicle. Um, it's again, it's, convenient, it's very it? convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I did not like the fact that all his employees were walking around with yeah. cuts and bruises. I mean, that was just stupid to me. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that made no sense. It's unless he's, unless he's doing a fight every single day for a new employee. Um, there'd be no way that somebody wouldn't have healed from their wounds for the previous week, would they? Well, it suggests that yeah. he must have just hired all these people yeah. and they suddenly started working. We, we do later on see that maybe they are involved with other 
ritualized attacks and fighting that are, that are being done, or at least they watch it. The, the the three guys in the cage. I mean, we don't know for sure, but maybe they do have um, you know, uh, company away days where actually they're beating the crap out of one another. Maybe yeah, but we definitely hear from from Ed Nigma when he's doing his own investigation. We hear from him that there's that there's been four of four of these deaths found over the last year. So how is everybody in the company covered in, in bruises and cuts? You know, it's uh, as you yeah. say, if it's if it's been happening over the last two or three years, then. Surely some people have healed from it. Maybe it should be a one-off fight. Maybe it's not. Maybe you have to fight for your weekly lunch allowance or your weekly paycheck or something as well, you know? A uh, bit crazy, though. But I think what comes out of that scene, which is really important, is this element of a mask mm-hmm. and that the mask is generally worn by the good guys to protect the people they love and their own identity and that the villains will generally... Um, revel in themselves and i think this has really important consequences then for uh, for barbara and jim's relationship that we see through this episode where she is really struggling to get to grips with what happened to her through her abduction by victor zaz and being held and kidnapped by uh roman falcone absolutely and, and she's that. going back to the bottle as we've yeah. heard previously f- with her uh, conversations with Rene Montoya that she used to be a heavy drinker mm-hmm. and now she's starting to come back towards the bottle to help calm her, yeah. settle her, or for her to actually deal with her traumatic experience. Yeah, and remember, it wasn't only it wasn't only Victor Zaz last, last in last week's episode. It was also Butch Gilzine who broke into her house and threatened her yeah. in her own home, you know? So uh, so while she made the stupid decision probably of going to Falcone's house to try and plead with him and uh, I think got captured by Victor's as, she was also in her own home when Butch Gilzine came in uh, and threatened her there. So she's understandably not, terrified, yeah, really. She's not, she doesn't even feel safe in her own home. Yeah. And we see her pulling a gun on Jim Gordon when he comes back from work, you know, again, where she's on edge. She yeah. doesn't know. And Jim kind of says... That's not the best thing to be doing, certainly after you've had a few drinks. Yeah. So she's descending a bit into um, becoming quite fragile and, and terrified um, within herself and um, the situation that she finds herself yeah. in. And she's seeking solace from, from Jim. You've been through a lot. It's over now. I am scared, Jim. Everywhere I go, I can, I can feel that monster's ass stalking me and I... He's not a monster. He's just a man. I won't let anyone hurt you. How can you promise me that? Tell me you'll be okay. Tell me there really aren't any monsters. Just lie if you have to. So Jim says he'll make sure that nobody will nobody will uh, harm her and makes that promise to her. And she rightly says, how can you make that promise? Um, how can you promise to me that, that I'll be safe? Uh, completely understandably, again, as I said, you know, Butch Gilzine broke into her house while Jim was at work. He's now stopped answering calls from her. She, um, she calls up and says, 
uh, I just want to talk for a second. And he says, I'm busy right now and hangs up on her. Um, and you can see that in her eyes that yeah. that really, that has an effect. <clears throat> I think as well, it's even just that she says, even if you have to lie to me, tell me that I'll be safe and yeah. that these monsters won't come and get me. Mm-hmm. And And Jim says that they won't come and get her. Yeah. And you know, he does make that point that Victor Zaz, he's not a monster. He's a man. He's trying to all the time protect her and shield her from her, her terrors now, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And he's also in his own terror because he's dealing with his anger and frustration with essentially all of the GCPD yeah. cops who got up and left um, when Victor Zaz rolled into the precinct in the previous episode. Yeah. But this leads to, as you say, him hanging up saying, I've got stuff to do, I must um, get to it. And he kind of hangs up on her quite abruptly. Yeah. And then you see, ultimately, that Barbara Keane ignores an incoming phone call from him and you see her walking out the door towards the end of this episode mm-hmm. uh, with uh, a letter um, in an envelope on the sideboard um, waiting for, for Jim who is on his way back from, from work. Do you think it wasn't going out to get some milk or do you think it was much more serious? I would say it's much more serious. <laughs> I presume it is. I presume <laughs> it is. Uh, but you mentioned the, the kind of uh, interaction between Jim and his, his relationship with GCPD. What I really like about this is that it's actually Bullock that points, actually points out why Jim is so angry uh, in a conversation with Essen. And it's essentially the deepening of their relationship and the, the friendship that he that, that's really start, starting to be created um, with Bullock and Gordon. And he's essentially feeling sorry for Gordon because everybody walked out on him including Essen. Um, and Sarah Essen essentially is, you know, she was standing standing by his side. She did say she'd stay um, and help him with Saz, and Jim's the one that sent her away, but she still feels really bad about this. Um, but none of the rest of the GCPD want to touch him. Um, you know, there's a whole whole sequence where they arrest one of uh, Detective Alvarez. They, uh, they arrest a doctor that's under his protection, essentially. Uh, and that's another another nail in the coffin for the relationship between Jim and the rest of the GCPD. He's not going along with the plan. He's not going along with the program. He's now arresting people that are under the protection of other cops. Yeah, or they're snitches, essentially. Exactly. The reason I mentioned the doctor is actually... Again, rumors uh, that this this is a character from DC Comics, um, a particular doctor that works in the underground, working with the mob, uh, fixing up the wounds and bruises of the mob. Uh, a character um, appropriately named Crime Doctor, um, <laughs> which is one of those wonderful ones that probably came around in about the 60s or 70s where we we need a doctor who works with criminals. Will we call him? What we call him? Doctor Crime. Doctor Crime. No, how about Crime Doctor? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, just a little reference that uh, that I thought was good to pull out. So again, we have Alvarez here. He's he's been in a couple of episodes. This is definitely his biggest episode so far, played by J. W. Cortez, uh, who's a real cop in in, uh, in New York City. Yeah, um, works the beach during the daytime and then goes off and records uh, Gotham episodes by night, um, which I think is really interesting that he's now getting much more uh, much more screen time. Yeah, uh, in this it, episode, it's, it's really interesting to see actually, um, and. Hopefully he's a consultant to say how actually cops would behave or maybe not so that they can actually take the opposite yeah. of how cops behave yeah. as the extreme of what goes on in Gotham. Um, but I think as well, Harvey Bullock really makes an important point that you need to go along with everything that's going on in order to get along, to, to like 
be a cop and to just do his job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's another one of those elements where Harvey Bullock throughout this episode is challenging Jim with his um, anger and mm-hmm. his sort of pent-up resentment for all his colleagues in the GCPD. As well, Harvey is sort of reminding Jim throughout this episode that he stuck by him. Not that he necessarily wanted to from the start, but that he stuck by him and helped him out and wanted to go down in a blaze of uh, of glory, or maybe gory, depending on how it uh, <laughs> right. uh, worked out. But that, you know, to the point where it's like there are people who are there willing to... Um, help you and stand by you that sort of cl- that close kind of shared experience of being a cop or being a detective mm. um, and I mean to the point whereby you know when Jim goes to follow up on the investigation uh, into these murders and Sionis that you know he goes missing mm-hmm. and Harvey Bullock is there trying to find different premises that are owned by Sionis so that they can go and sort of investigate all of them to see where Jim has gone. Yeah. That he stands up and makes this speech and you know to say look he, the problem is is that when you look at him you realize what you did was wrong and that's the issue. You know he pulls rank on them that you know the cops are a family, they're a team, they work together, they look after and watch out for one another's back. And you know what we see then is Essen and Alvarez taking the lead. Alvarez because maybe he's cheating on his wife and he yeah. wants uh, Harvey Bullock to Cover to, to keep covering for him. But yeah. that Essen and Alvarez you know, take some of these cars to look at um, which premises throughout Gotham are owned by Sionis uh, Industries or financial services yeah. um, to see where Jim may be so that they can investigate the these different premises. Yeah, you get the feeling that, that the GCPD, again, I think it's something that um, Donald Logue mentioned to us when we were interviewing him uh, about the fact that there's been many of these cops that have come through Gotham uh, PD that have you know thought they were going to be the best thing ever and thought they were going to be able to clean up the department and that kind of stuff, but none of them have been Jim Gordon before. Uh, it seems like all the cops are just expecting him to get shot and killed and dumped in dumped in the river. Um, they're just expecting to go away like an annoying fly, essentially. And if they ignore him long enough, he'll be gone soon. Don't worry about it. What Harvey's essentially saying in his speech is, he's here to stay. You guys got to help him out. You're the ones that are in the wrong. And it's starting to change Harvey. This this position is starting to change Harvey. And it's starting to soften Essen, as you said. Yeah, the this partnership between Gordon and Bullock is evolving, and it's evolving in a way of a mutual respect, where Harvey is an old school, I have your back, you have my back. We saw that in Spirit of the Goat with his old partner from Mm -hmm. 10 years ago. He's not lost that, and whether he likes Jim or not, or what he's trying to do, he still has that ethos of, we're a partnership we work together. Yeah. I might want to close off a case um, a bit sooner than you do, but I have your back in a tough situation. And um, you know they may have different ethoses um, as to how they go about doing the job, but there is an opening up. There was so much secrecy beforehand, where Jim obviously wasn't telling him that he hadn't shot mm-hmm. um, Oswald Cobblepot. Now, by the end of this episode. Jim is being quite open 
to to Harvey Bullock to say that you know I'm going to go after dirty cops, public officials, and the criminals. Falcone, you know, call a spade a spade. Falcone is a criminal. Mm-hmm. He is manipulating this office, the GCPD, the mayor. He's dirty. He's a criminal. I'm going after him. Yep. And he leaves um, Harvey in no doubt that he's not going to stop. Yep. That he that's that's who he is. It's even to the point where he says, "I don't want to kill. I don't want to fight. But if I have to, if I'm pushed to, I will suit up. I will arm myself, and I will go after, and I will do what is required." And in these final moments of the investigation where he has gone to the Sionis's, uh derelict office where all these fights are taking place, he ends up having to fight for his life. Yeah. Um, and then Sionis comes in on it. Another fantastic, brutal fight between yeah. the three of them, again, showing off Jim Gordon's uh, experience in the army, uh, showing off how good a fighter he really is. He's taken on three guys who were, you know, essentially put up to murder each other, um, seemed perfectly willing to do that. And then when they're told that there's a that there's a cop there, there's little, they, they stand off for a second until they hear there's a million dollars involved yeah. and then <laughs> and then go for him and. Jim takes him down pretty quickly. I was just wondering: is this the, is is this scene where uh, where uh, Ben McKenzie cracked his head off the off the the stone? It looks wall? like it. it looks like he gets very close to yeah. that stone uh, bollard and smacks his head off it. Really, yeah. and we saw it up on Twitter months ago where he had a cracked open head from uh, from a scene uh, filming for Gotham. I wonder was that was that the scene? It looked very painful. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it, again, we're left with a great image because Sionis gets in on the act. His three potential employees have all been knocked out by Jim. He comes in with a katana with his mask on, with his black mask on, um, to take him down. Mm. And ultimately, actually, I think what's shown is Jim is too good for him. Absolutely. He kind of thinks he's this warrior and knows what to do. And yeah, he's got some good moves there. But Jim has had the experience of military life, of being in combat and fighting for his life. And again, he scraps and he fights for his life. And it ends up with, again, one of these defining moments for Jim where he's at the crossroads and he has to make this decision. Do I plunge this katana into Richard Sionis mm. or do I not? And I love the framing shot with um, he's kind of this blue-green hue on... Um, Jim Gordon, the fluorescent light sort of flickering in the background, the intense look of Jim Gordon, of Ben McKenzie, whilst he's got the katana raised above his head. Mm. And again, it's a decision time. And this is one of the things that really sets uh, Jim apart throughout all of these, is when it comes to that moment, whether it's do I shoot Oswald or not, do I tell Harvey Bullock about what's happened or not, how do I deal with telling um, his fiance Barbara Keane? Now he's, the major crimes, all the major crimes it. unit about it, and now he's faced with a decision of whether he should kill Richard Sionis or not. Yeah, and yeah. ultimately he decides not to. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, as, as you say, it's a crossroads for Jim as a character. When he makes these decisions, he ch- tends to choose the righteous path, I suppose. 
but be damned the consequences is very much the uh, very much the kind of the the feeling we're getting from the series of Gotham. The feeling I'm getting from the series of Gotham is he doesn't really care about the consequences. He's going to take uh, take the right choice, and so far the consequences haven't been too great uh, overall for Jim. Uh, he's lost most of the most of the relationships he's had. They're starting to turn around though, which is good. It's showing that the choices that he's making are eventually turning into the right choices. They're just annoying people as he goes. Uh, as it goes along, I suppose. Yeah, and I think in particular, one of those choices that is beginning to soften is Captain Essen. Yeah. And her relationship, well, at this moment, professional relationship with Jim Gordon. We know, obviously, from Batman Year One, the comic mm. uh, by Frank Miller, that they have a romantic entanglement. And to begin with, it didn't look at all like that was how this show was going down. And it may not be the case, but... Yeah, we even had some feedback about that as well, about the creation of Sarah S and that she didn't seem very like the comic books. And, yeah. You know, it, it's very possible now. But it's like there has now become an empathy between the two of them. I'm not saying they're suddenly going to be, yeah. you know, getting into bed with one another mm. or anything like that, but... Captain Essen and Jim Gordon are beginning to develop an understanding and empathy between one another. Were um, you know they have this great moment where Essen's kind of like this whole thing, this whole thing that's going on with Sionis and mm. this, these employees who are fighting for a job. It says that this is unbelievable and um, it doesn't make sense. You know how has this happened? How has this happened in Gotham? Yeah. How has Gotham become like this? Um, and to an extent, I think she's beginning to tune in to Jim Gordon that this is going crazy. Yeah. This is starting to get really uh, freaked out. And you know, Jim makes this point. It comes back to Thomas and Martha Wayne's murder, this idea that they represented a different Gotham. Mm -hmm. We heard about it last week where Falcone says that Wayne Industries is now back on side. This idea that they somehow were this uh, marker, were, and they were the people who said no to um, this kind of behavior within their company. That they represented a decency and um, hopefulness within Gotham, and of course that's now gone. Yeah. It also shows that Essen is quite aware that he is still investigating. Thomas and Martha Wayne's death as well. Yeah. Um, and so she understands when he talks to her in these terms about Thomas and Martha Wayne being something that stopped or prevented this craziness that's yeah. going on. Yeah, absolutely. He makes reference to the fact that the Balloon Man was... How much different is Sionis from Balloon Man? How much different is he from the ghost? that Gotham is going crazy. And yes, as you say, she seems to have just been ignoring it. In the previous episodes, we saw her just saying, clear this up, I don't want this to tarnish my good name, essentially. And now she seems to be much more on side with Jim. She's the first person that pipes up to say that she'll help him out um, with this investigation. She was the first person to take the locations to investigate, essentially. So she absolutely seems much more on side with Jim after he stood up to Zaz and protected her last week you know uh, it's great to see a, a nice change in her character and a softening as you say of of, uh, of her character really really good and the other kind of fallout from last week's episode between two of the other characters is between Fish and Penguin this, uh, this scene between the two of them that happens quite early on in the episode where they sit down to discuss the terms of the the kind of Falcone and Moroni uh, uh, truce, truce, yeah, yeah, truce, yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic scene, really, really good. Love this conversation where he's introduced to his replacement within Fish's army. Yeah, Timothy, poor old Timothy. Look at you. 
Timothy, do you know this fellow used to have your job? Carried my umbrella and thought it an honor. Now look at him. Has a seat at the table. Things change, eh? I've been blessed. So he says that he's, he's blessed to have had the job in that position. Um, really, really good scene between the two of them. Again, um, to, the fish is a really dangerous character, and yeah, and... the menace from her is is great, and the almost pretend ineptitude of of Oswald Cobblepot. This that's almost his shield. It's like mm-hmm. I'm kind of a slightly nervous um, person, but it's almost to distract. Uh, his enemies from his true knowledge about how everything fits together, and yeah. I, I love that. But yeah, Fish is men- at her menacing best here, and yeah. you know, even to the point where she has a little slurp of the penguin's blood and finds out that it's sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, that whole scene—the instant I saw that the brooch had a spiky thing <laughs> yeah. on it—I uh, was saying, "Step back, step back! Yeah. Do not give her your hand." <laughs> um, yeah, really, really good. But I suppose it leads into Oswald. Obviously, he's just been introduced to the person that's taken over from. He's been in that position before, and in Timothy's position of holding uh, the umbrella for fish. So he knows exactly the kind of information that, that, that Timothy is privy to. So obviously he gets him kidnapped um, by his henchmen, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Poor old Timothy um, gets kidnapped, interrogated. Yeah. And um, I would say it's going to be very difficult for for uh, fish to get anybody to hold her umbrella from now on. Maybe maybe Butch might do it from now on because you know the the job listings for this will be uh, will be saying that the previous two occupants were either killed or uh, or thought they were killed. As yeah, <laughs> but we have another situation where a victim of penguins is stabbed with a knife. Mm-hmm. This time done by his henchman, but Timothy essentially lets. Um, let it lets it be known that Fish has got someone close to Falcone. Yeah, that was the little nugget of information that the little hook that Penguin was looking for, and um, to to see snare, what it is, why she fish. is. Uh, yeah, exactly, with a little worm on it. Unfortunately, <laughs> Timothy being the <laughs> little worm, um, and it comes from another great scene between Oswald and his mom. Gertrude Kappelport, played by um, Carol Kane, who is great. I mean, I'm loving every scene that these two have together. I have to say, the minute I'm seeing her name come up in the credits when she's going to appear in an episode, I'm already excited. Yeah. Like the, the, she, her name came up about fourth in the credits this time, and I've gone, brilliant, okay, I can't wait for that scene. Um, right, and she doesn't disappoint this time. Again, fantastic scene. That's it. You've had, you've had her with... Christmas Allen and Mary Montoya. You've mm-hmm. had her with washing her son in the bath yeah. kind of thing, very creepy. And now you have this other scene with uh, Oswald and her. And all her scenes with her son, she is teaching him. I don't know whether she knows this or not, mm. but the analogies that she gives, I mean, are so descriptive, are so um, raw and... Um, just kind of dirty in a way that and Oswald takes stuff from her. Yeah, yeah. And this is what leads ultimately to him getting Timothy and interrogating him and ultimately to 
Timothy's demise, because she has the rat in the trap. She tells him about her story as a good dancer being bullied, um, and ultimately... By Magda the cart horse. (laughs) (laughs) By Magda the cart horse. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And (laughs) how to get back at the cart horse. Mm -hmm. She denounced her father to the secret police. Brutal. Brutal it's this idea of what can Timothy do that will denounce his boss, yeah. Fish Mooney. Yeah. And then... And what secrets does he hold? Yeah. Ending with the rat being caught in the trap after a nice bit of camembert. Yeah. So, you know, that I think maybe alludes to Fish isn't taking the bait at mm-hmm. the moment. Oswald is looking for that nice bit of creamy camembert cheese to trap her, to yeah. hook her, ultimately. Absolutely. And I, I must say with the revelation from from Timothy or the reveal from Timothy of uh, our friend with Falcone, which was apparently the conversation that Fish had with Butch Gilzine, um, our friend with, with Falcone, I, I wondered... Was was the actual conversation about Oswald Cobblepot? How is he making the the slight leap that it's somebody else that's close to Falcone? Does you know would they be calling uh, Oswald the friend with Falcone? Um, kind of you know, in a, in a, obviously a disrespectful way. He's not their friend. They know that, but you could still refer to Oswald as our friend who's over with Falcone. So is he making the leap that it's Liza? We don't know in this episode, but um, but Oswald could be thinking that they're talking about him. But But it's that tit-for-tat between Fish and Oswald that's going on. I mean, that game of, I was going to say cat and mouse, but maybe I should say um, Fish and Penguin. penguin. (laughs) That (laughs) chase, you know, um, that's happening. In a sense, away from each other. And that's why these meetings between Mm. the two face-to-face, such as last week and then again this week, are so intense and so great because... They're still sounding one another out, to s- and who will get the 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 upper hand on all of this? But yeah. we see then Fish meet with her weapon, Liza, yeah. uh, in a confession, and um, where yeah, she's really looking like a, a Virginia Italian Italian kind of maid in in the you know the white outfit going into the confessional box. You know, um, bless me, mother, for I have sinned. Very funny. Um, really, really good interplay between the two of them. But it really, again, feels like something out of The Godfather or something out of a, a really good mafia film yeah. where they do the meeting at the at the Catholic Church, essentially. And we, we, we find out that Fish wants Liza to get this ledger, mm-hmm. um, to steal this ledger. She gives a, a, a vial of sleeping potion or something like that yeah. to, to knock him out so that she can go into his private office to steal the ledger. Mm-hmm. And I love the honesty of Fish when Liza asks, well, what happens if I get caught? And she she goes, you'll probably be dead. Yeah, yeah. poor, poor Liza. Poor Liza. <laughs> um, but Liza, I think, is certainly not as committed as maybe she was at one point. Um, she's certainly looking for a way out. And in fact, she comes to uh, Fish in a club again mm. um, with this time the ledger. I hope it's a copy. Yes. Because otherwise... Yes. I think he's going to notice that they've been ripped out the back of his ledger. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think it is. Um, there's a this this whole scene between Liza and uh, and Fish, where she's essentially telling Liza the story as to why she wants to take it, take down Falcone. Um, there's a there's a an older lady who's sing singing a song in the on the stage in the background. Is is it Fish's mother? I think I think it is. She tells the story that Fish's mother was murdered in front of her eyes. 
Um, she was hiding behind a curtain. Yeah. Obviously, her mum was maybe a prostitute or yeah. or something to that effect. Um, yeah. It felt what very a... Kill Bill to me in yeah. terms of that animation. Um, I, I think it was in Kill Bill Part One, yeah. where again the daughter is under the the bed of I think um, her mum and dad, yeah. and they get murdered. And there's the vow then that she. It's not about revenge, but she will never be controlled again by another man. Yeah. And the man in question ultimately was one of Falcone's uh, gang. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ben. I see what you mean. It does sound like the revenge plot from um, from Orenishi, isn't it? From, uh, Orenishi, yeah, yeah. yeah. From, from Kill Bill 1. It does sound like that kind of revenge plot. But then you find out later on in the episode, the old woman who's, who was singing the song on stage comes over and talks to Fish. Fish says, you were listening, old woman. Doesn't refer to her as her mother, but it's very possible. Yeah. It seems very likely that this is her actual mother. So her mother didn't die, wasn't murdered. Is there any anything about the story, or was she watching Kill Bill the previous night and took the story from that? <laughs> but there's a really nice line that Fish says here, and it's that a lie with a heart of truth is a powerful thing. Mm. And, I mean, we have here as well a really important line uh, from Fish to Liza, that shows something really um, important in how Fish sees Liza. You're scared, but I won't let anything happen to you, and that's a promise. I want you to say, I believe you, Mama. I believe you, Mama. That's my girl. So yeah, for the second time this episode, someone has said, I'll protect you. Don't worry, I won't let anything happen to you. Second time, someone is out on their own with no direct connection to to the person that's saying this. And Jim is not always protecting Barbara, yet he says he will protect her and make sure. He's, never, he's not always with her. He's ignoring phone calls from her. He said he will protect and make sure she's going to be okay. Um, and Fish is not, be- not beside Liza. She's off on her own in a house full of enemies, essentially. And Fish is saying, don't worry, I'll protect you. Nothing will happen to you. I'm concerned for both of these characters, for both Barbara and for Eliza, that, that something will happen to them that nobody can protect, you know? The uh, protection is offered there, I suppose, by Fish. Um, one of the other things, the song that's being sung by, we'll call her Fish's mother, by Mrs. Mooney, um, is Nobody's Fault But Mine, which is a, an old blues song by Blind Willie Johnson, kind of covered by Led Zeppelin, I think, in the 70s. Um, and essentially, the song itself is about someone saying that that every everything that's at fault around me everything that's going bad around me is my own fault it's nobody else's so is it kind of an allusion to the fact that fish's story was a lie and that uh, the situation she's put her put herself in she's responsible for but she's going to do everything she can to get out of them yeah. rather than it being falcone's fault just and that deliverance from those misdeeds and yeah 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 that's that's what i what i took it as really good song though i must, must say i love the I love good old school of, blues definitely blues. yeah yeah classic the last piece we go on to is really is, is bruce and alfred fantastic second storyline here. I love this. Finally get a good this is bit a of good, Alfred Bruce. Yeah, good through story and really helps develop their relationship further. I love the fact that it's out of Wayne Manor. Mm-hmm. Bruce, Bruce going back to school. Yeah. Seems to be a bit of a ladies' man, a bit of a charmer. Yeah. Um, obviously picking stuff up from Alfred there, that old sort of wink-wink, how's your father kind <laughs> of 
like he didn't really have to say much, and the girls were kind of hi, Bruce. Yeah. you know, so nothing, good on him. Nothing that gets a date from a girl better than like than an losing, orphaned millionaire, losing your parents I mean, and billionaire, exactly. billionaire exactly. Um, But he's certainly been taken out <laughs> kicking and screaming from that one room in the Wayne Manor, though, isn't he? He's, uh, he's kind of going to Alfred. Homeschooling is just as effective. I have the numbers to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and Alfred tells him, you know. Uh, you, don't you want to be normal like the other kids? And he says, I don't know. Define normal and make a good case for it, <laughs> you know, which is fantastic little awkwardness of Bruce and how, how different he is from other kids. I love how that's Yeah, but also this Alfred's kind of going, right, if I get him to school, it says, then I don't have to deal with all this awkwardness yeah. because I'm not a parent. And I think that plays out later on. But the interaction between the two of them as he drops them off at, is it Anders Preparatory Academy, I think? Yeah, um, is Gotham really, Academy. Gotham Academy, mm-hmm. really, really um, good. And we then get introduced as well to um, a very curious, a morbidly curious, I think, um, mm. Tommy Bully. Elliott, um, who is really curious about his parents' murder and mm-hmm. um, fascinated with what his mum was like. It's slightly obsessive in a curious uh, way, um, but this is Tommy Elliott. Yeah. Who... Shh. Shh. No use. <laughs> this is Tommy Elliott, yes. Uh, quite a quite a well known character from uh, from the comic books, um, yeah. And you're right; he is morbidly curious about the death. He specifically says, "I haven't seen a dead body before. Was there blood? Was there guts?" He seems, yeah, yeah, quite an interesting character. But ultimately, that entry goes to confronting uh, Bruce, and Bruce giving him a pretty big slap actually for yeah. bringing up his mother. But unfortunately, Tommy's with about a gang of four or five other lads and ultimately Bruce gets it kicked out of him yeah yeah it does um but Alfred's not going to take that for his Bruce um and teaches him his the first of what looks like it's going to be many tricks that he'll learn from Alfred uh take your father's very heavy watch and uh, and use that to beat up uh, Tommy at his own home <laughs> <laughs> knock at the door ring the bell hit him and they have this wonderful line point well made i think you are me any broken bones he he tried to kill me that's right he did he tried to kill you just you remember that next time you see him and you remember now i let him try (sighs) now let's get some ice in those knuckles I just love it. I love it's brilliant. I love it's Alf- great yeah. parenting, obviously. <laughs> I um, love Alfred's Alfred's look of of going. Look, you know what? You didn't. He didn't break any bones. And remember, I could have let him kill you, um, which is fantastic. fantastic. I, I think as well, it's moving Alfred's relationship with Bruce onto and into an area that he is ultimately happy with, which is about fighting. You know, he's from mm-hmm. a military background and Bruce Wayne at the end of this episode says will you teach me to fight and the look of Alfred the the facial expression on his face is one that oh well it's almost like a sigh of relief and a and a big broad smile comes on his face because Mm -hmm. it's like I can teach you this I know about this being a parent I can't, but I can teach you to fight and and protect yourself and defend yourself. And I love that. I think the other thing that I take away from this is Bruce's determination and resolution um, 
not to be seen as weak mm-hmm. um, to to Tommy. Um, I think he even kind of chastises um, Alfred when he says, it would look like failure if I backed down. Yeah. I think like Alfred is kind of, well, there's no harm if you decide you don't want to go through with this. And he is quite, it will, it will look like failure. Yeah. I, I can't allow that. This is a yeah. really... Um, I like the I like the don't be nervous from Alfred. He says, I'm not nervous. I'm just visualizing what I'm going to do to him. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, um, again, a very Batman thing to do is visualize the scene and visualize how you're going to act it out, essentially. Um, yeah, really, really good. So, But it, it is. It ends with Alfred's face almost looking, I know how to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we have this second element now. We've seen that Alfred's willing to get involved with Bruce from that detective work Mm -hmm. about his parents' death, and now we see him becoming a tutor from a fighting point of view, from a how to fight, how to defend himself, and how to go on the attack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Overall episode? I, I liked it. I mean, I really did. I thought it was good. Again, for the serialized elements, mm-hmm. for me, it just was that one scene in Sionis' office mm-hmm. and with all the employees that just detracted from that investigation. But I think some of the elements hanging off from it, like Harvey Bullock and Essen and how they um, are sort of starting to really be supportive for Jim, I thought was great. Yeah. I can't wait to see how the events with Barbara play out. I'm sure they're coming, but, yeah. you know, they're fiancé, and they've had a rocky relationship, Absolutely. and now she's leaving again. This is the second time that's happened, so it'll be interesting to see how, how that works. And I loved all those different elements. Mm. The through line of um, Bruce and Alfred, and Bruce going to school, and us meeting Tommy Elliot, really good. As I say, it was more the crime of the week and the investigation of the week and I thought that was a slight disservice. If this is Roman Sionis, you know, called here Richard, mm-hmm. it just feels a slight disservice. But I would hope that if it is, then maybe we'll see him in Blackgate or even Arkham when they realise that he's actually nuts. Yeah. Um, he, he's a, a a guy obsessed with violence, weaponry, and actually is a bit of a psychopath. Yeah. Um, it would be great to see him in Blackgate at another moment in time and to expand that out, yeah. I think, because I think that's one of the issues is that all these things going on, it's very easy to suddenly have to cram in a lot of the investigation into one scene. And sometimes that works, sometimes. And I think in this case, for me personally, it didn't work. Yeah. But I think overall, a good episode yeah it's one of the things we keep being told by the by the makers of the show is that they're not going to keep introducing villains but they keep doing it <laughs> they keep introducing more and more characters to build out the city and don't get me wrong i love i love references to the comic books i'm a huge comic book fan if they weren't making references if there weren't little hidden easter eggs every week for us like tommy elliott um <laughs> then then I, it wouldn't keep me as interested in the show but they need to slow down on them it would be great to have this, the investigation of Black Mask happening over two episodes. We mentioned before about Spirit of the Goat, the same thing. Do that over two episodes. Keep the keep the the intrigue and the investigation. You can't solve every case in a week, um, no matter how good a detective you are, you know. Um, so the, the one other thing we didn't mention, though, and didn't talk about really is Enigma. In this episode, Enigma's 
character gets a really good build out, gets a really good, yeah. um, you know, some really good pieces to kind of build out his character. The opening scene where he's sitting with the dead body and he's looking, he's he's kind of investigating what happened to him is a really good piece of how great a detective he is as well. You know, uh, Jim Gordon arrives. He gives him a big smile because you know it's another guy that he, the, the other, the only other person on the force that treats him well. Um, so he wants to prove to everybody all the way through this episode, particularly that he is a main player on the team, that he can lead the investigation, that he can find out what happened. And he does, in a sense, comes in a little bit late. But he gets um, undermined a bit. Quite a bit by everybody. Yeah. All, yeah, all the way around. Um, and whether it's from the coroner, because he's there doing the autopsy scene, which yeah. I think is a really creepy, you know, he's looking at the hacksaw, he's sort of doing riddles with the corpse, mm-hmm. um, and he's, you know, poking around and he's, taking out sort of corkboard tacks, yep. the printer, toner, um, all this kind of stuff. And he he's just being pushed aside at each time, whether it's the coroner or whether it's Harvey Bullock saying, we already knew it was being done in, in an office place. Yep. What he brings is that other people have died with this office supplies, you know, I don't know, staples in the shoulder, staples in the head, yeah. that under these suspicious circumstances where they maybe look like um, a financier or something. Yeah. And it, he brings that. Yeah, and I think what it shows is that essentially Edward went off and investigated it on his own and got to the full bottom of the investigation and then came back with his information. He didn't just bring back the first piece that he'd found out uh, that could have connected it. He found out what other stuff was connected to it, which none of the other cops were, were doing. Uh, nobody else was looking in as deeply as he was. He's trying to solve the riddle of why this person died, essentially, um, which I really like. I think it's a great a, a great episode for, uh, for Corey Michael Smith, a great episode for Ed Nigma. And again, as you said, him being pushed aside constantly in all his endeavours to help everybody out because he's just an annoyance to the rest of the cops is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, it started off in episode one in the pilot with just a throwaway remark from Harvey Bullock with, you know, stop with the riddles, Edward, um, and kind of being brushed aside. And increasingly, whether it's through Christine Kringle Mm -hmm. or through... Captain Essen, or just being ignored, with the exception of Jim Gordon, mm-hmm. um, he keeps just getting pushed aside. And what that does to a man in his position will be really interesting to see. And I love that serialized character development that is happening with Edward Nigma and how that's being portrayed by Corey Michael Smith is really, really good. Um, I think the only thing I would say, and I don't, it's nothing to do with. Edward Nigman's character, but given that they pulled out another finger from the mouth of the the dead uh, potential employee mm-hmm. of Sionis's, it's a shame that they couldn't have found that guy through the fingerprint, through fingerprint. rather than happening upon him in the bathroom at Sionis's company. Yeah, yeah. Those kind of elements, if you're doing an investigation, seem quite obvious to me. I didn't understand why it happened to be by happen chance almost. That was a yeah. bit odd. I think then... It was because the card in the pocket, wasn't it? The yeah. The Sinister's card rather than waiting for the fingerprints, which would have taken you know, short Yeah, time but I mean, again, it's, it's, a quick, it's a quick thing to do. And then one other final thing is we did have Selena Kyle brought in That's right. right at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing her come into this a bit more now a bit like with 
Edward Nigma's character developing over time quite nicely for me, mm-hmm. anyway, over the the current eight episodes that we've had. I think we had, you know, her in episodes one and two in very crucial moments. Mm-hmm. And then she's just been popping up and we've not really got a sense of where she is. You know, in Viper, she was pickpocketing. Um, she was seen at Wayne Manor mm-hmm. sort of looking at Bruce's cork board and his investigation. And this time we see her um, robbing from a clothes shop. Um, she, she took him fur coats and, and handbags yeah. out of the... It's a funny little <laughs> yeah, scene. Yeah, it's a also. nice little scene. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested now to see, now she's back at the precinct and she's asked for Jim Gordon how that develops. Well, that will be really good. Yeah, and the one thing I, I, I wonder about is, you know, Originally, the series was supposed to be 13 episodes, um, then moved to 16, then moved to 22. I wonder, is the character still in the cast slightly being sidelined from where they originally intended her to be? Um, because she was in the, for in the pilot episode, she was the, the witness to the Wayne's murder. Um, in the second episode, she tells them that she knows who the killer is, but we still don't know that. We still haven't heard that from her. And now we're in the eighth episode, and once again, she's holding this idea that she knows who the killer is over Jim to get away with another crime. Um, so I wonder, is it going to be that she's been put on the back burner just, just purely by the fact they have more episodes to explore her character or to explore the ideas of Gotham? Um, I don't know. Uh, I think I think that might be the way they'll do it in a couple of episodes. Maybe might mightn't even be before the Christmas break on, uh, in episode 10. It mightn't even be before then that she reveals her knowledge of who the, who the criminal was, maybe it'll be the cliffhanger over Christmas, essentially. But... Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, definitely, yeah. because at the moment, um, she has certainly been quite peripheral, despite mm-hmm. being quite central, in in a way, for the first two episodes. Yeah. And I think now, she's well, she's been arrested, she's back in the, the GCPD precinct, she's asked for Jim Gordon, We've had Essen in this episode talk about, I know you're investigating Thomas and Martha Wayne. This is a chance now for Jim to further that investigation. Mm-hmm. He let her slip from his grip last time and escape. Now he has her again. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see that interplay. Will Selena have that upper hand like she did where she was kind of almost baiting him to an extent? Mm-hmm. Jim is now aware that she can slip a pair of cuffs um, yep. so won't fall for that trick again. So it'll be good to see how that plays out, definitely. Absolutely. But overall, a good episode for me. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, definitely a, a good one. A good one, definitely. Well, that's our thoughts on The Mask. If you want to share your thoughts, send us feedback at uh, feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com or you can contact either one of us separately at derek at gothamtvpodcast.com or john at gothamtvpodcast.com. Right, and with that, on to the feedback for this week. Fascinating. Fascinating. Points well made, I think. So on last week's episode, Penguin's Umbrella, we got some feedback from David Arrington. And hi, he, David. Hi, David. <laughs> yeah, he says, um, hello, Derek and John. I've just watched episode seven of Gotham, Penguin's Umbrella, and I think it's the best episode yet. It is focused a lot more on the overarching story and less of the villain of the week. While I normally enjoy the smaller stories in each episode, the larger story is the one I'm most interested in. It was fun to see Gordon and Bullock trying to go out on a blaze of glory, and I hope we get some more of that before this season is done. I think Gotham is really hitting its stride with the last couple of episodes. I'm loving the show and your podcast, Keep It Up. Thank you, David, for that. Um, and thank you for your feedback. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think I'm very much in agreement with you here. 
I am really enjoying these serialized um, elements throughout Gotham. When it hits well with a investigation such as The Spirit of the Goat, I think those episodes are absolutely brilliant. Where there's a slight misstep, I think maybe they're some of the weaker episodes, but because of that through story, mm-hmm. the episode doesn't ultimately suffer too much from that. And um, If it was just simply about those investigations, it might do. Yeah. But then, on the balance of that, more time could be given over to the actual investigation. And I think that's the difficult balance. But I am totally with you. I think that larger story that's running through each episode is really intriguing. And then you will probably have these moments throughout the whole of this 22-episode series where you have these big episodes like Penguin's Umbrella, which really starts to bring together all those threads that we've been seeing. And it was absolutely the best episode so far for me as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. That, that was that was an excellent episode. Um, and as we talked about this this time, you know, the, the actual investigation into the mask in this episode or into, into Say Honest in this episode did seem to fo- form a much smaller part of the episode than some of the investigations have in the past. Yeah. Maybe that will typify it in future. Maybe that will be the type of episodes they'll do where it'll be a very small investigation that doesn't form a huge part of it. Um, or perhaps... As we've recommended, I suppose, a couple of times, perhaps they will start doing, you know, half of the investigation happens one episode and the resolution to it will be in the next episode so that they can fill in around the storyline of what's happening with Penguin or what's happening with Selina Kyle or or with Tommy Elliott and, and Bruce Wayne, you know, uh, perhaps that's the way they'll do it in the future. But um, but yeah, I think th- I think we're, we're definitely on the same side about that, David. Uh, thank you very much for your feedback. Yeah, thank you, David. Yeah. Again, if you want to send in your own feedback to us, you can contact us at feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com or you can email both of us directly. Yeah, if you want to um, get on to us about any of these review episodes and discussions we've had about anything else, about the characters, about its relationship with the comics, get hold of us on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Twitter, on Google+. You can check us out by searching Gotham TV Podcast and... You can join our page on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Yeah, please follow us on Twitter. We've just hit the really terrible number of 666 followers, which I really don't like. So if we could get, <laughs> if we get a few more just to get above that 666 <laughs> threshold, I'd be really happy. Um, please do. And, of course, you can always check um, the stuff we're posting up on the website on gothamtvpodcast.com. And, of course, you can leave reviews for us on iTunes, and any other um, podcast catcher. Excellent. Thanks very much. Next week's episode is Harvey Dent, episode 9 of Gotham. I can't wait for this Will it be a tale of two hearts? Potentially. Potentially. It'll definitely be a couple of ad breaks. Um, But yeah, I think uh, really looking forward to this one. This is Nicholas D'Agosto, who was in Final Destination, playing a young Harvey Dent, the DA of of the city of Gotham. Be really interesting to see. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next week for more. Talk to you soon. And nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine. But I read my soul below. I have a Bible in my home. I have a Bible in my home. But I read my soul below. <laughs> it comes from a great scene, another great scene um, with uh, 
Oswald and his mum, Gertrude Cavillfoot, obviously oh. Barbara Kane again. And it's a great scene. Carol Kane. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's directed episodes of Agents of Shield, Sleepy Hollow. He was the cameraman for Man on Fire. The what, the um... the Man on Fire. He was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Crime of the week and the investigation of the week, and I thought that was a slight disservice if this is. Roman Sidonis. Si- if this is Roman Sionis. Gotham TV podcast, do not cross Alan and Montoya.